huge news, years in the making, my brand new book that my publishers refuse to publish, Money Matrix. Beat the money system and build generational wealth. Understand the three main ways that the banks productize you and make money from you. You'll be able to turn that system against itself, build generational wealth and multiple streams of recurring income. It's all at moneymatrix.cash. And if you're quick, the first few hundred registrants and buyers will receive many special bonuses from me. The brand new Moneymaker Summit three-day special event. Meet me at a champagne reception. Meet me at a multi-millionaire networking dinner. Go now, moneymatrix.cash. This is huge. The Money Podcast by best-selling author of Money, Rob Moore, dives into how to make, manage, and master money. How to know more, make more, and give more. How to save, invest, and raise money. The Money Podcast is for anyone who wants to make more money in a job, profession, or passion. For money masters and money disasters. They say money doesn't make you happy. Rob says it does. Hi, it's Rob Moore here and welcome to the podcast. So the six-month model for building a, a scalable, sustainable business, uh, I broke down into six S's. Uh, and then module one was the startup phase. Module two is the sales phase. Module three is the staffing and systems phase. Module four is the survival phase, when you get chaos in your business and things that break. Uh, module five is the scaling phase. And then module six is the sustainability phase, You know when you become a mature business. Modules one and two have already been done in the past. You'll either find them on a podcast or in a, um, a recorded membership site somewhere. Um, we're on module three, which is staffing and systems. I believe there are four staffing strategies that you should implement or could implement in your startup or scale up. So um, strategy number one for staffing is not to hire until everything breaks i.e. you keep a lean overhead, you don't hire too many people or any at all. And then when you're stressed or when your staff are stressed or, um, you know, when things are breaking because everyone is overwhelmed, then you hire someone and another person and another person. And I've had business mentors who have that strategy, i.e. staffing up is a last resort because they want to keep the overhead lean. I'm not saying that's right or wrong, but that's strategy number one. And, and really, most entrepreneurs, that's how it works. They don't start and hire a load of staff before they make any money. They make some money. They get really busy themselves. Um, and then they're like, because everything's, you know, they're overwhelmed. They're spending too much time in the business, not on the business. Then they're usually in a reactive way higher. Um, and you can basically run your whole business like that. But it's very, very reactive. But it will keep the overhead lean. The second thing you can do, and I wouldn't necessarily recommend this until you've either got some startup capital or you've been going a while, and that is to hire a bit more in advance, i.e. hire before you need it. Because if you hire three to six months before you need the person, you know it's going to take you some time to find them anyway. You can onboard them, train them, set up their systems and get them rolling such that when you actually need them, they're able to do the job very well. Whereas when you hire in a reactionary capacity, um, you know, you're getting people in fighting fires and trying to fix everything that breaks. And, and I've often had people that I've brought in and I've ended up breaking them. They've been broken because there's just too much overwhelm and chaos and too much to deal with. OK, the third way that you can recruit is by always be recruiting. In sales, they say always be selling. In marketing, they say always be testing. And for me, for the most part now, I am always recruiting. And so I have a rolling recruitment policy. I'm always recruiting for good salespeople. I'm always recruiting for good um, administrative people. I'm always recruiting for good marketing people. 
So that means, you know, wherever you are as the entrepreneur, you go into a shopping center and you see someone who's really good at selling or someone online or on the phone or in a store and you think, wow, they're amazing. If they're local to you, you should offer them a job. And or you're always rolling out ads on LinkedIn or with the recruitment agencies or Monster or whatever um, sites and resources you use for hiring. Um, Because what you find with hiring is you feel like you want to hire someone. It could take you three months to decide, three months to find them, three months to train them. So that's nine months until they're ready. So if you have a rolling recruitment policy, uh, then you find the people when when they're ready rather than when you're ready. Because when you're ready to hire, they're not necessarily ready to work for you. Um, you need them when they're ready. Uh, so it's just in when you get big enough, like I've had four, maybe five staff leave in the last week. Um, I know, you know, um, it, it's that time of year where often you get turnover um, and we haven't had anyone leave for ages. We've also got three on maternity leave and we've got about 80 staff. So it sounds like a lot, but it's still under 10 percent maternity and leaving. Um, so if we're always recruiting, then that gives us this contingency. Uh, also, if you're always recruiting, when your existing staff find the ads for the new job, they don't get upset because if you're not and you run an ad and they see their job up for grabs and they can get upset. Um, but that, you know, if you've got a bit of funds to invest and, you know, go and build your business or you've got a decent sized business, you might want to consider that strategy. Then you've got to think about, do you outsource, insource or both? So I know a lot of modern businesses, they like to outsource. They like to have uh, VAs. They like to have uh, coders that they use online. They may go to some of these various outsourcing websites like onlinejobs.ph or Upwork um, or 99designs. And they might hire uh, remote designers, remote web builders, etc. And uh, I think outsourcing is, is a great thing for the modern business. It keeps overhead lean. Um, if, if there's a downturn or there's risks to business, then obviously you can pivot. You haven't got a lot on the overhead. Um, they're they're um, self-employed, so you've not, not got the um, national insurance and other costs. But it's hard to instill your culture and your values onto them. They're not necessarily in the office all the time. So you don't maybe have that environment, that control, that leverage that you might want. Um, but you can obviously pay on a completed job, whereas when you pay a salary, you're just paying the salary regardless if they complete, complete the job or not. Now, if you want to build a lifestyle business, you probably want quite a lot of outsourcers and not many insourcers. If you want to build an empire, like is my goal, and you want to build a vast business that's global and, you know, it, it's a, it has a mission and it has a culture and it has a team and an environment and an office, then you might want to consider hiring, you know, insourced staff. Okay, great. So let's move on then to the first of about 10 points I'm going to make. So I think you know that people are your greatest asset. I don't think I'm, you know, wowing you with new information, but it's very easy for you to get busy, for you to work in your job rather than on your job, for you to do all the tasks that you've got to do anyway um, and uh, forget or not focus on your people, whether that's just your one VA or your ops manager or your MD or, you know, your... um, refurb manager if you're a property investor or even your people like letting agents and estate agents who manages your properties and source properties for you. The biggest quandary, the biggest uh, paradox and friction of being an entrepreneur is you working on your tasks, you working on your systems and you hiring and managing people to grow your enterprise. They're the three main elements. Now, when you're working the hardest, you're the most lean and maybe the most effective but you're not systemizing your business, which means there could be breakage or lack of scale. Um, and also, if you're not bringing in the staff, then you can't grow it. 
But often in that messy, chaotic bit in the middle, you're doing all three. You're doing the work. You're paying people and you're still doing their work. You're paying people and you're trying to get them to write their systems, but they're not trained. So you haven't to read and manage their systems. You haven't to train them up and do their job as well. And you're hiring and you're just all over the place. And that's, it's just the entrepreneur's journey. It's just a journey in your, or a stage in your journey. Every entrepreneur has gone through it. Um, but if you can focus on leveraging and managing people, if you can find out their values, if you can inspire them, motivate them, give them an empowered vision, if you can take some time to spend with them, if you can teach them, onboard them and train them, inspire them, motivate them, move them, care for them, then they are going to take your company to the next level. A company of a thousand always starts with a company of one unless they acquired a company already. But virtually every sort of startup company is a founder of one or two before it comes four, 40, 400, 4,000, 40,000. So every entrepreneur and every business has gone through that growth challenge. There comes a point where if you don't focus on other people, you will be too busy, too overwhelmed, too stressed, uh, and your, your business could implode. So whilst you may be a bit focused on tasks and what you've got to do on your key result areas, you know, you should be focused on sales and marketing, but you might be focused on that and there's no leverage in that. And you've got to focus on people and focusing on people is also focusing on you, i.e. managing yourself, managing your emotions, doing personal development for yourself so you can grow. As you become a better entrepreneur, founder, leader and manager, and you develop your own personal skills and your relationship with yourself, i.e. your confidence, your, your ability to deliver a message and a narrative to the team and to inspire them and to be truthful and honest and accept feedback as you deliver those, as you develop those skills, you become a greater leader. People are inspired to work for you for maybe less money and because um, they want some kind of vision. And then if you can give them those skills, and that's required of your time or your systems, then they are going to carry that legacy down for you. Okay, uh, so the next thing then is if you want to grow, you have to let go. Now, I've already talked about the entrepreneur's quandary of you being really busy with doing your own stuff, you trying to get systems and processes written up and trying to hire and then um, train up and have staff take on those roles for you. Um, but many entrepreneurs struggle with that. Most entrepreneurs are small or one man band because, oh, I tried to hire staff one time and they're shit and they did a shit job and I had to do their job and I was paying them and then I had to get rid of them because they're shit. Except in reality, there was no onboarding, no training. There's, there was no culture. It was, um, you know, they were just brought into this fire and not really given any help or support. Um, and also, a lot of entrepreneurs find it really hard to let go, i.e. come in and do this job, but actually don't do this job unless you do it my way. And let me check it all the time. And oh, you can't do that and say that. And that's not how I do it. And, oh, I'll leave. Uh, so, you know, you have to let them take on projects. You have to inspire them to go and find out the answers. You have to let them take the, the job on uh, and let them do it their way to a certain degree. What's the point of having a dog and barking yourself? There is no point. So there is no point hiring someone and then um, having them do your job their way. Now, you can write a system to have the job done and, and that system makes it the right way. But anything around that system, as long as it's in line with your values and it cares about your clients, then you've got to let them, let, let them get on with it. Now, often we think, don't we, that uh, if we let go, uh, a staff member might not uh, succeed in the role or the project as well as we can. But actually, on the other side, if we let go and let them do it, they may do it better. They may do it, do it different better. Um, because if you're juggling 58 things, you probably can't give it the justice it requires and the time and probably can't do a great job. Whereas if it's their job full time, 
Because if you think about it, when you start as an entrepreneur, you're doing the sales, you're doing the marketing, you're doing the branding, you're doing the website, you're doing the communication, you're doing the follow-up, you're doing the customer support, you're doing the dealer with the complaints, you're doing everything. You can't do all of them great. And what you do over time is you pick off, okay, so marketing is going to be head of marketing, sales is going to be a, a head of sales, and then a sales team that they're going to manage. Um, and, and, you, and you just pick off the individual roles that you're spinning all over the place. An entrepreneur often isn't a uh, specialist. They are a generalist specialist i.e. they're pretty good at juggling all the tasks of a business, but you can't grow like that. And in the end, you get in your own way. You become stressed. You implode your own business because none of them get done very well um, or you don't take the time to scale them up and out. Okay, so in a good way to let go to grow is obviously to hire staff, is to give them key result areas, i.e. the non-negotiable five to seven things in their job that they must do such that if they don't do it, they're not meeting their minimum standard of performance, also known as MSOPs. Uh, give them the required training and resources they need to do the job. Keep supporting them, have month, one, monthly one-to-one -one reviews, good training systems online, such as videos and PowerPoints and scripts and audios, so that they can learn on the job and then get out of their way, let them do the job and just you know um, have these regular catch-ups for their personal and professional development. Okay, and then the third of what, nine or 10 points I'm going to cover is if you want to de-risk hiring, what you do is you have a minimum standards of performance known as MSOPs in the contract of employment with your staff member, ideally linked to revenue such that if they don't meet these criteria, then, you know, they don't have a job. Obviously, it's not written like that. Um, but within one year, you can pretty much say, come and work for me. Okay, it didn't work out. Let's move on. And there'll be no repercussions in terms of, you know, redundancy or any kind of legal comeback. Even in the first, second year, they're quite relaxed. After two years, there's a, the, the rights pivot a lot more in favour of the employee. So in those first one to two risks, you've got uh, years, you've got much lower risk. Um, now, for example, with the sales team, we have a minimum standard of performance whereby they have to bring £5,000 a month revenue uh, and they don't get any commissions on that. Uh, and that's their minimum standard of performance. They have to make 60 calls a day if they're in the bookings team. That's their minimum standard of performance. That is expected if they don't meet those criteria, then they don't meet the minimum standard of performance of the job. Um, and then they might get X amount of commission on the next five grand, then X on the next five grand, and then X on the next five grand, and we don't put a ceiling on it. Um, now, uh, it's pretty easy, isn't it, in sales and marketing to link multi, um, minimum standards of performance to revenue. But if you're creative, even in admin roles, you could link... Um, minimum standards of performance to revenue. Like, for example, you might have some debt collection or some customer service, which you could have a net promoter score on. And each time, each quarter, you do a net promoter score. If it's above eight out of 10, for example, then you may pay a bonus to that admin staff. So you can actually link a lot of minimum standards of performance or incentives to staff who don't usually bring in revenue. Because think about it like this. If you could guarantee that every staff member brought in one, two, or even three times their salary, I mean, a salesperson should bring in three times their salary, if not more. Uh, but if they're a... Um, a more admin-based role, if you can have their um, salary covered by minimum standards of performance, uh, then essentially they're not costing you any money to hire them. Um, so you want their role covered in the minimum standards of performance. And then if you can, uh, some kind of commission over and above. Now, like I said, it's not always easy in every role, um, but I think in a lot of roles in my companies, we've got commission-based incentives um, I always like to say to my um, team, come to me with a suggestion, come with a proposal. Um, I don't think I've ever turned anyone down as in don't come and talk to me if they've had a pr proposal. 
Um, I've had I had one on Friday, which worked really well. And I've doubled, I doubled the commissions for the person who brought it to me. Um, and it was very creative. It was actually really simple. I should have thought about it myself, but I didn't because I have too, too many things to do. Um, so, you know, encourage your staff to come to you with creative ways to increase the revenue. I always say to my team, um, if you can put a plan together, which will increase our revenue, then you can have a share. Okay, so number four then is I think often when people hire for the first time or when they're in the infancy of hiring is they just go, yeah, there's the desk, there's the computer, get on with it. And then when they say, oh, how do I log in? <laughs> What's my job? Oh, don't bring me problems, bring me solutions. I was definitely really bad at that for ages. I was one of those annoying entrepreneurs. Oh, I'll chuck them in the fire and they'll sink or they'll swim. If they sink, they're not right. If, you know, if they swim, then they're right for us, they'll work it out. But that's me because I'm an entrepreneur. Uh, but that's not them because, you know, they're an intrapreneur or they're an employee. They're not the same. Um, and, and that's OK, by the way. I don't want everyone that works for me to be an entrepreneur. Not everyone is an entrepreneur. We're quite a rare breed. I'd rather develop intrapreneurs. And then, you know, because um, they don't take the risk of being an entrepreneur. You know, like if there's no money at the end of the, of the month, I don't get paid. I have to pay on my team before I get paid. Um, but of course, I've taken the risk. So I get the upside rewards. But not everyone's like that. A lot of people want, a, you know, a standard job. And that's cool. Um, okay, so in order to um, create this clarity of role and responsibility, what you need is a clear job description. Now, we have a job description which has the progressive vision at the top, one or two lines, the values, which is three words, the culture values, which is eight words, the job description, which is a, a short paragraph, the key result areas, which are five to seven non-negotiable things that they need to do to perform their role, the income generating tasks, um, at, um, above that, which are the tasks that they do that generate the most income for the company or them in that role. And then the, the rest of the tasks within um, that role. And that always fits on a two page Word document. So that's how you want to plot out your job descriptions. So vision, values, job, role, key result areas, income generating tasks, and then, then, then the rest, rest of the tasks. And I find that's the most productive way to have an inspired job description. So KRAs are key result areas, IGTs are income generating tasks. Um, what a lot of people's job descriptions looks like is a manual of what to do. And then at the bottom, they say, and anything else the company deems fit within our rights to reserve or whatever, which basically means they can get you to do anything. Um, I don't like job descriptions like that. I think when people join a role, they want to do that role. Now, roles change and we try and dance with that change. OK, so then the fifth point is um, your... I remember being mentored by James Kahn and he said to me, look, Rob, you don't want to be managing people. You want systems and processes to manage people. And like he didn't mean like never, ever talk to people or support them or do their one to ones. But what he meant was if you have to tell them how to do their job when it's in your head, then you're going to be busy trying to do your own stuff and busy trying to help them. And they haven't got a clear path or a, you know, a visual way, um, a systemized right way of, of doing their job. And it's going to be very confusing and chaotic for them. So he said to me, what you need to do is the entire structure and operations of everyone's role and what the company does and its function and purpose and how they're delivered, even access to online sites and how they work, you know, CRM systems, marketing systems, internal systems like Sage and, you know, uh, process and finance management, all of that needs to be systemized in um, documents. So an overall ops manual broken down into one page checklists um, and then broken down into the, each individual um, role of the staff member, which might be their two page job description. It might be the ops manual for their role and it might be a one page checklist for all the things that they do. Um, so when you have all of those systems and you have it in an ops manual, number one, it's easier to train staff. Number two, it takes less of your time. Number three, if they're resourceful, they can go and find out the answers. Number four, it makes it more scalable. Number five, it makes it more saleable. 
But again, most entrepreneurs know this and don't do it because they're too busy doing the doing and not spending, you know, two hours on a Friday every week writing the systems and processes. Now, I like to leverage the leverage, which means I like to have an assistant um, interview me and interview my staff, an assistant responsible for building all the systems and operations and manuals within the business so that I don't have to do that myself because I found that quite a challenge to do, i.e. it was boring. It was just something I didn't really want to do. All right, cool. So next then we've got onboarding period and good training. So I remember the first time my um, ops manager said to me, Rob, um, in my last company, we used to let the staff come in for a week and not do any work and go and shadow all the other roles and departments and read their um, operations manual and get to grips with the business. And I was like, what a week? No, get them in, get them selling, get them fixing all these problems. I'm not waiting a week. Uh, and of course, that's like me chucking them in the fire again. So you want a good onboarding period where for the first week, maybe they shadow various members of staff who are more experienced and are going to be interacting with them in their role in, a, in different departments. You want to give them time to read their training manual and to watch the training videos and listen to the training audios and get to know the culture. So for Progressive, for example, we let them come to some of the events. And then three months, you need to not really judge them on their results, but judge them on their effort. Um, and learning the systems and processes and the way the company works. You want to give them as much support as you can. You want to be as accessible as you can, or at least their manager is, and then start to step it up from there. And you want to make sure they have really good training, uh, which I know most entrepreneurs are terrible at. Well, I can't speak for everyone. I can only speak for me. Um, and uh, I think we've got better at that, though we've still got a long way to go. Uh, and we still do need uh, better training systems. Now, again, if, if a staff member says to me, hey, I want to do this training course, can I go? I'll often say yes or work a way out of it or, work, you know, wait to work it for them and us. Um, it, as we grow and become more corporate, maybe that'll all be a bit more systemized and part of their career progression. I've learned from corporates because I've never worked in one and I've never been one is that actually having a clear career progression with your bosses, 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 boss. And here's what you do and get there and how you get there the quickest and what it means. And then you become a, you know, a partner or a director or a shareholder in 20 or 30 years. Of course, most entrepreneurs don't really like that. They want to forge their own path. But the benefit of that is they can see a clear path. And we're trying to build that as we go at Progressive because we're very entrepreneurial and we have a flat organizational hierarchy. Okay, next then is there are three things that are, um, have been researched and apparently proven to be more valuable than money or worth up to 15% saving on their salary um, from you as the employer. And that is PRA. And PRA stands for Progression recognition and autonomy. So if they don't have progression in their career, they're going to get bored. They're going to get stale. It can be six to 18 months for some people where they need some kind of progression. It might be more responsibility. It might be a little bit more money or more commissions. It might be a, a moving into a different role because they've been doing a role for three or four years. It might be more responsibility, more people to manage. Uh, but if you don't continually give them progression, then they can get frustrated and feel like they're decaying. Um, recognition, you know, you can walk around the office high-fiving everyone, hugging them, clapping them, kissing them, telling them they're amazing. You can do that for eight hours a day and it still probably won't be enough. Um, people often, and I know I'm like this, I need recognition too. I went and out and sought it a few times this week because I didn't feel like I was getting it. So we all need it. So you want to make sure you give that to your team. You want to reward effort and results and you want to try and equally reward the people who are in the limelight, like the sales and marketing team and the speakers and trainers who, who are the kind of the, you know, they'll go out and seek it or they'll demand it. But there are a lot of admin people or introverts or, you know, your solid workers who won't go out and seek it or demand it, but they still need it too. 
Now, um, recognition can be in the form of uh, monetary rewards. It can just be, you know, it, it could be praise. It can be giving them a bit of time off in lieu. It can be giving them um, other bonuses that are non-monetary, like packages in your um, in your bonus packages, like, for example, gym membership or buying or selling extra holiday. Um, so we, we do a lot of those things. Um, it can also be celebrating birthdays every year. When someone's been with us a year, they get an anniversary card and a gift, and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger the longer people have been with us. I just signed an eight-year and an 11-year anniversary card, and there'll be a big, chunky bonus coming from that. Uh, and that, so that's recognition. That can be public or private, depending on the individual or both. And then autonomy is you want to hire smart people. You want to give them all the resources they need to do their job. And then you want to let them crack on with it and get out of their way and not micromanage them and not, um, you know, demean them or um, people hate. I've I've had this happen to me and I I know people hate being publicly embarrassed or berated. Um, So autonomy, let them crack on with their job. Don't shoot them down in front of others. Make sure that they've got all the resources that they need to do their job, because if they haven't got the resources, whether it's the financial resources or the sign off or just, you know, the the systems and processes and software they need to do their job, then they can't do a good job. Um, And you'll find if you give people projects and responsibility, they'll often uh, stand up and deliver to that. The the more that you challenge them, Um, you want good staff slightly challenged, not slightly bored. Bored staff is not what you want. That, 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 That will be a nightmare for you and for them. Okay, uh, and then next, so we've got, what, two or three more things. Next is the difference between an entrepreneur and a manager. Now, an entrepreneur is someone who creates a vision, who's a little bit crazy, who, you know, wants to um, change people's lives and build products and make things happen and fix things and scale. And they're energetic, they're enthusiastic, they're often good at pitching and, you know, like communicating they're terrible at managing, they're terrible at process, they're terrible at organization, they're terrible at efficiency. Managers are good at that. Managers are, you know, they look after the staff, they make sure the systems and processes and resources are in place. Entrepreneurs are often quite reactive and emotional. Managers are often, you know, a little bit more planned and organized and systemized and think about the staff and they think about the implications of what the entrepreneur does, whereas the entrepreneur just sees the big picture and goes for it. Um, It's very rare you get a good entrepreneur and manager, they're different roles. So understand which one you are. And if you're a good manager, maybe you want to partner up with an entrepreneur. If you're a good entrepreneur, you'll want to definitely hire an ops manager, an assistant very early. One of your first, I think the three most important hires and the earliest hires should be someone in marketing, someone as an assistant to you, and then an ops manager. Uh, And then, you know, I'd argue if someone's good at marketing, they'll generate sales, but then you could also say a salesperson. Now, often you'll do the selling of your business. You'll go and do the prospecting because that's your business. You created it. But four... First roles, sales, marketing, assistant, um, admin, and ops manager, someone to manage the office or the operations of your business. Okay, then next is, ah, yes. So the entrepreneur creates the vision, the manager um, deals with the operations. Now, I've had a lot of experience in running teams and companies and staff and trying to get them excited and motivated and to see the big picture. Of course, you've got a balance seeing them. If you give them a massive big picture, but you don't deliver on that, that's actually demotivating. So I think you've got to balance where we're going and what our plans are and excite them with some reality. And the reality is sharing them in the narrative. I think what a lot of people do is they, they, they don't really tell the full story or they hide some of the problems. Uh, and I think that it's really important that you share the narrative of... Um, you know, sometimes the challenges or sometimes the things that didn't work. Uh, Warren Buffett's very good at that in his annual um, shareholders newsletter. And when there's challenges, be open to them and tell people how you're going to fix them. 
Uh, and don't bullshit people because it's easy just to keep pumping a big vision and then people will feel missold. So I think if you balance the excitement with the realism, then I think you'll get the best buy-in from your team. Okay, right. Then next, should you hire on aptitude or should you hire on attitude? So aptitude is their ability to do the job, their skill set. Attitude is obviously their mindset, their buy-in to the culture, their desire and work ethic, etc. Now, um, in, the, in the days gone past, you hired someone who could do the job. That was just how it was seen. And of course, people moved less and were more loyal to companies or felt that they were stuck in companies or worked for the same company for decades. The more modern ways are you've got to hire for attitude because you can teach skills, but you can't teach attitude. I actually think it's a mix. I think it's a balance of both. Um, I believe that if you hire just on attitude, whereas there's a particular set of skills required for the role, then they're going, it's probably going to break them and the role is not going to get done. Um, but if you hire just people who can do the job, who don't fit the culture or who aren't enthusiastic or prepared to grow, um, then, of course, you're also going to have problems. So I think you've got to look at it on a role by role basis. Does this require technical skills? Like if it's a coder, it's technical skills. If it's a salesperson or a marketer, it's technical skills. Um, if it's an admin person, it's general skills and maybe then some attitude. Um, and, and I think it's a good balance of both because you don't always get both. Now, if you have good internal training, you can hire on attitude and create aptitude. If you don't have good internal training, you've got to hire on aptitude and try and develop attitude. But it's harder to teach the old dog new tricks. Um, yeah, so that's just my take on it. Now, I'm not trying to hire entrepreneurs. I used to try and hire entrepreneurs. If you hire a load of entrepreneurs, they're all going to leave one day and nick your ideas and your business and your skills. If you hire just a load of jobs worth who just want to do the uh, 10 till 4 and don't really want to, you know, grow or contribute, either one of those extremes is probably not going to serve you. So I like to try and hire entrepreneurs where we take the risk. They don't want to take the risk. Um, they want their salary coming every month. So they want to be employed, but they don't want to feel like they're employed. So they want progression, recognition, autonomy. And I believe they're intrapreneurs. They're entrepreneurial in their mindset, but they're not hardcore entrepreneurs like you and I are. Now, you give them progression, recognition, autonomy. You give them um, projects, not tasks. You get them inspired into the vision. You ask them to them to contribute to the ideas. You get them to solve problems for you. They get a bit of a share of it. You know, you cut them in on upside of various um, schemes of commission or incentive or problems that you solve then you're creating this innovative, creative spirit within what would normally just be otherwise an employee. Um, so, yeah, this is the entrepreneurship is the new word um, in the English language that's developed from this. OK, and then finally, before I tell you about um, our main sources for recruiting, uh, and that is culture and values. So. Every company has a culture, whether they know they have a culture or not. The feeling, the atmosphere, how you do things, your uniqueness, the energy that you give out, the processes that you follow, the order and sequence in which you do things, your own flavor and take, the way you do it differently, all of that is your culture. Now, you can sense that when you see someone speak. You can sense that when you, you know, you can just get a sense of how we and things are just by our logo, our brand and everything else. Um, so it, it, it transcends and is filtered through and in the DNA of everything that you do. So 
If you are clear on what your culture is, progressive, innovative and personal are our culture values and our company values. Uh, so if you have the few words or, or a, 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 your way, a unique way of doing what you do, the furniture, the people, the colours, the, the brand, the, even the way that you speak, it all represents your culture. Um, I run a course called Business Cashflow Masterclass and I click through a load of offices, company offices, and then we do a little quiz to get to people to say, is that Google? Is that Facebook? You know, is that Red Bull? Is that LinkedIn? Is that Microsoft? Is that McDonald's? And pretty much everyone gets them all right. I'm not trying to trick people. It's because it's so obvious just looking at the offices and the desk and the colors, uh, etc. So even when you're a one man band, you want a one woman band, you want to create this culture. How do I do what I do? What's unique about me? What are my values? How do I do things differently? How do I innovate? You know, you know what's, what's fresh about me? Why would people want to work for me. And when we are 100 people, what atmosphere, what energy do I want to create? Um, and I didn't really start that until we had about 10 staff and I should have started that earlier. Now, your values are what you stand for as an organization. So we are progressive, innovative, personal. Uh, they are our company values. And if people want dry, boring nine to five jobs, you know, ticking boxes, then they should go and work for someone else. But if they want sort of constant challenge, and sometimes that'll be hard, and if they want variety, and sometimes that'll be chaos, then progressive is the right place for them. If they want to innovate and always react to the market and feel like even when there's a recession, you know, we're going to be able to work a way through to solve those problems, then progressive is the right place. But it will challenge you. It will frustrate you. It will be chaotic. I don't make any um, false pretenses that we're ordered and systemized as much as we could be, because if we were fully ordered and systemized, we wouldn't be progressive and innovative. Um, yeah, so be clear on your culture, be clear on your values, your organization, but also get to understand the values of each individual employee or entrepreneur. I always ask when I'm recruiting, um, what's most important to you in your life? And if someone says, well, I like to go to the cinema and I like to travel a lot and, you know, I like to spend time with my dog and blah, blah, blah. And their role, or at least what they do in their role is not even in the top five. I know they're not really interested in their role. They're just um, working living living to work rather than working to live or whichever way around is the, the non-empowered way around. I want to know that if they're a designer, they do that evenings and weekends and they love to do it. I want to know that it's a passion as well as a profession. Um, and then also when I know their values, I can use that to motivate them. If someone says that family is the most important thing to them, of course, that's absolutely fine. I'm not expecting people to work at Progressive be more important than their family. But I know that giving them a bit of time with their family or getting them, their family involved in some way Maybe more empowering than a little financial incentive, for example. Okay. Woo! Cool. So we find our staff uh, from local recruitment agencies. Of course, you can just research local recruitment agencies for you. We get the most amount of staff from there. I've asked my head of HR to, um, I asked her how to tell me our top five um, sources for a recruitment. Now, what she's going to do for me next time is tell me where our best retaining of staff and our best quality and time that staff are with us from which source as well, because that might be different. Our second biggest source of recruiting staff is from specific agencies. They're like, like there are IT recruitment consultants. There are marketing recruitment consultants. So that's the second for us. The third is LinkedIn. Um, the fourth is referrals from staff because we pay a, a commission if someone um, comes and works for us through a referral and they stay for minimum one year, they get uh, quite a few hundred pounds, I believe. And then the fifth is from actually asking on Facebook. I've hired two people myself from just putting an update on my Facebook. 
So the fifth top, five top sources for recruiting staff is local recruitment agencies, specific recruitment agencies for the niche like IT marketing, LinkedIn referrals from staff, and then from actually updating your Facebook social media. Okay, great. So I hope you felt like you got a decent amount of uh, information in a pretty short amount of time. If you've listened to the podcast or watched the live feed video, thanks for tuning in. Um, yeah, and remember, if you don't risk anything, risk it.